when I was 19, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mother and father, my brother and sister, and all of our neighbors and all of our competitors and watched them auction 25 years of my parents' work off at a foreclosure. And they auctioned everything right down to my mother's car and her house. I was enrolled down at Ohio State in agriculture and ag econ. My dad said, I need you to come back and help start the farm over again. We started on six acres. I can't dream of doing anything else. Uh, it's in my DNA. And a pair of overalls, as you see today, and a white shirt and a red bow tie. And that's what I'll be buried in. And I, I can't dream of doing anything other than attempting to grow the most nutritious, healthiest, best flavored vegetables that exist in the world. That's our goal. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, I've had guests that farm, but I don't know if I've had any guests that called themselves farmer. Uh, be like me calling myself podcaster. This is podcaster Roger Wasson, and I'm talking to farmer Lee Jones. Farmer, how did you come to confiscate farmer to identify yourself as your first name? Uh, a lot of people might regret that you beat them to the punch. Well... I certainly hope there is no regrets. Um, you know, there used to be a saying that, well, if you can't make it in the real world, at least you can go back and work on the farm. And was kind of a, <laughs> That's right. There was kind of a negative connotation to that, that if you didn't have the smarts or the know-how, um, then the, the, the dummies could go back and work on the farm. And I think that it's a position that they've taken that we're proud to be farmers are we the smartest people in the world? No, but we're not dumb ones either. And I think it's okay to be okay in your own skin. And so I, I don't tend to think of it um, as anything boisterous or boastful, but, you know, it's Dr. Smith, it's Dr. Whoever. And yeah. I think that it's um, just an, a pronunciation that, I can respect it. If I don't respect that position of a farmer, then how would I expect anybody else to? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair. And with that role, now, you're a pretty unique kind of farmer in a way. I mean, you're you're raising lots of vegetables, but let's let's talk about that. What is what is your enterprise? Well, I mean, I would preface everything by saying I don't do anything. <laughs> singularly or individually. We are at first and foremost a God-fearing family farm, and we're a family, and we choose to farm for a living. We happen to be in an amazing microclimate right along Lake Erie, Lake Erie being the shallowest of all the Great Lakes, consequently the warmest, and it, there was a, a long history of vegetable farmers. European settlers recognized this area. In fact, this was huge in, in um, wine grapes, even before California. There was a lot of wine grapes mm -hmm. grown here. But also, um, as far as we can figure, about 330 vegetable growers were in this county. Now, why were they here? They recognized that microclimate of Lake Erie. 
But this is all old lake bottom soil about 11,000 years ago. It's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. And so the if you look at the proximity to an hour from Cleveland, an hour from Toledo, two hours from Columbus, an hour and a half from Detroit, three hours from Pittsburgh, four hours from Cincinnati, you have this beautiful microclimate to grow some of the most amazing vegetables in the world right right in a nice location to be able to get that product to large populations. And so it made a lot of sense. Um, my dad went to work for a vegetable grower that was very progressive. Uh, his name was Charles Nichols. And he recognized the competition that was starting to come. Um, as roads and refrigeration started to get better, and I know a lot of us can say, what are you talking about? Um, you know, we can get on a freeway today and be in Chicago in four hours from here. Um, but roads and refrigeration pre-1940, 45, uh, had not developed to the point where you could move products so freely across the United States. And so it really, it created kind of this regional distribution that we all seem to be striving to get back to. We had it and we let it get away. Yeah. yeah. But as the roads and refrigeration got better, of course, outside competition came where growing seasons were longer. Florida, the Carolinas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, where they were doing it on a bigger scale and they could do it quite frankly, more efficiently. Um, and so one by one, I'm sure if you go back to the hometown that you're from and remember the family owned grocery stores that used to exist when you were yeah, there, absolutely. Right. I think we had seven or eight family grocery stores in a little town of Huron, Ohio with a population of 7,000. Well, you know, there might be one family grocery store left. But one by one, those family farms went away, too, because they yeah. ultimately couldn't compete. Well, in fact, I, we had a general store in a town of Kramer, Illinois, and there were only 12 people in the town. So it was mostly the rural area. But in my earliest recollections, all the fruit they got was having to come all the way from California, even back then. Wow. And um, the vegetables, people were a little bit more dependent on on local vegetable growers, right. uh, but especially the fruit was dependent on on shipping in from California. Um, but let's go back to that then. I mean, I, it's really intriguing. I think a lot of people listening to this don't automatically think that Northern Ohio would be, you know, a place that would be great for growing growing vegetables. And you've done a good job of describing it, and it. And it reminds me, too, that I've talked to some people in Ontario, the vegetable growers up there, they're on the other side of Erie, and and they feel like they've had a, a great opportunity, and they do a good job of vegetables producing it as, as well. So it really scratches, makes me scratch my head a little bit, and, and um, I'm anxious to go back and take take another look. But let's let's talk about where it is today. So... So you've got that heritage, you've got great soil, you've got great location, you've got a customer base potential all around you. Um, for heaven's sakes, there's people come all over the world to the Cleveland Clinic and hear that they need to be eating more vegetables and get their hearts healthy because it's rated so highly as a, as a spot to go when you've got heart issues. And they don't have to look very far away from Cleveland, as it says, to be able to get the get that healthy food. So, so you've got me sold. I, I'm convinced you're in a good location. Well, is 
in terms of the way that we measure success today, it possibly is not because it's about how cheaply and efficiently we can produce food. Unfortunately, that's what farmers are measured on. Keep the costs and the inputs as absolute low as possible and produce as many tons per acre as possible and you might stay in business. That's the measuring stick. Unfortunately, the methodology to get there has allowed us to take the integrity and the quality, the nutritional vitality of those products down a path that I don't believe is sustainable. I like to think that, um, and I'll jokingly say that in the middle of the summer, when the growing conditions are absolutely the best, I jokingly say that I like our product the least in the summer season because it's too California-like. And what I mean by that is that because it grows lush and soft and fast and rapidly on the shoulders of our seasons in the cooler temperatures, we have a tagline that we grow vegetables slowly and gently and full accord with nature. I don't believe that there is any better quality of vegetables grown anywhere in the world than on the shoulders of our seasons when those night temperatures get cold and it warms up during the day and we even get we get the cold freezing temperatures and then the thawing. Some of the things we won't even pick until after they've had for us because the sugar, the natural sugar, natural sugar levels go up so good in them that they're just so much better flavored after you've had those freezing and thawing temperatures. So I'm a little biased. I'll openly admit that, but I would put our products on the shoulders of the season up against anything that's available anywhere in the world. Boy, that's an interesting way of looking at it. You know, out here where we've got, you know, wine country, the, the, the wines that they, they like the best, that have the most flavors, um, have to work. And, yeah. and there's something in this whole process that they don't just have it easy. In fact, you can kind of get simple, sweet wines uh, without, um, that really haven't had to work hard, but they kind of look for areas that, that the, the plant is is working. And in that process, they save some of for, for the taste. In my case, it's some of the wines. But what you're saying, it makes, it makes sense. And I've never heard anybody referring to it in quite this way about the shoulders of the seasons. Um, but that's that's great. And I was going to ask you to expand on that a little bit, but I'm going to kind of quickly jump ahead to something I would add to it, too. And that is I'm a I'm a fan of freezing and canning and, and drying and everything else, too. And so I've always felt like a missed opportunity is for people to also take advantage of extending those seasons by realizing it's it's uh, it's not wrong to eat canned foods and you can have canned and fresh vegetables and you can you can get them from you know places like yours for example i would imagine if you if it's canned in the peak of the seasons That's or right. the shoulders i mean getting them when they're in their peak of flavor is really the goal and that's when you want to can them and preserve that essence i would think that a canned or um preserved product in the peak of season is better than something that you're getting um, you know, in the season, off season, um, is going to be a way better product. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know that's the case in, say, tomatoes, for example, that somehow yeah. in the process of canning them, lycopene is more available and it's an antioxidant. 
And that uh, so in some respects, it's just as good or better than um, than fresh. We actually have a trademark on spinach, and it's uh, the same concept as ice wine, and it's ice spinach. We're harvesting some spinach right now that has been frozen and thawed over 60 times. Uh, you can't harvest it frozen. You've got to wait till it thaws. We use a low tunnel or we have some high tunnels um, and it, it protects it. But um, we'll even move those cold frames across the field as we harvest an empty one. We'll move it over another section and it'll take off growing. It freezes at night, it thaws during the day, it freezes at night, it thaws during the day. We use a refractometer and the spinach right now is testing as sweet as a red delicious apple. Oh my All gosh. Down to the stem. It's absolutely amazing. Well, I wouldn't have to have that just be cream then. There must be a lot of other ways to eat it and, and enjoy it. I love cream spinach and I'm I think mm. I probably overdo it on the cream part of it, but that, Hey, let's, let's go out to the field now and, and talk about what it is you plant and what's, what's growing on your farm. Well, you know, we, we tend to think somewhat seasonally in that um, when asparagus is in season, we should eat it three times a day. And when it's out of season, we should lust for it for 10 more months. So um, during COVID, uh, the restaurant business that we sell to was really in trouble. And we did everything we could to, to hit a first base hit, anything. And uh, we opened a retail market on the farm for the first time in 40 years. We opened a farm market back up. We launched a nationwide home delivery. So listeners um, or individuals um, could buy product at home and get safe product at home. But um, right now, if you were to come to the farm market, it would be like going to your grandmother's root cellar. Um, carrots, beets, rutabaga, parsnips, celery root, um, winter radishes. Now, we extend beyond that a little bit in that we grow some microgreens, and we grow some edible flowers, and we grow some unique and specialty things for the restaurants. We didn't really think that individuals would be interested in those, but I think it it allows our foreign market to be very unique and having some specialty items that uh, they're probably not going to find at any other farm market anywhere in the United States. So we're you know we're excited to have opened up to the community. It's a certainly a smaller part of our business because it's just a new business really opening you know in 2020. How many how many items you have? How many different? Uh, products there's about 677 products holy cow um when you do the blends uh it's about 6500 sku's so if you were to sit down and try and write out the most inefficient farm that you could imagine it would be the chef's garden (laughs) (laughs) now we have a neighbor that is probably one of the most efficient and we have several neighbors like this i'm not excluding but we have neighbors that are some of the most efficient best farmers anywhere in the country Uh, neighbor farms four thousand acres a father and two sons 
and they are on the ground exactly at the right time and to, to plant. They're on the ground exactly at the right time to harvest. It doesn't matter whether it's a Sunday or a Monday or whether it's at two o'clock in the morning. They're off of the ground when they shouldn't be on it and they're on it when they should. And they're efficient and they do a very, very good job. We have 400 acres under management. Um, we have 187 full-time people to manage 400 acres, half of which is in what we call cover crops in any given year. Um, we follow the philosophy of regenerative agriculture. Um, you have to understand, and this isn't my opinion, these are facts and you, anybody here listening can Google these. But from 1920 to 2020, the nutritional level in vegetables has gone down 50 to 80%, and it's continuing to go down. And that's kind of mind-boggling to us to think with all the knowledge and all the technology and all the brilliance we have in this world, that the nutritional level would be allowed to fall 50 to 80% in a 100-year period. It's not sustainable. But if you also think of that, you've got that graph in your mind with nutritional level in 1920 here and coming down. 50 to 80% in a 100-year period. In that same time frame, a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, and diabetes. It's not a coincidence that those two lines are going opposite directions in the same 100-year period. And what's really been exciting to us is to be able to reverse that. And in many ways, and my dad had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. if, if you think of the advancement in production and productivity and efficiencies on the farm, a lot of those have included chemical and synthetic fertilizers. And what we've tried to do is go back. You know, we've all jokingly said, I need some vitamin D. I'm going to go out and get some sunshine. And I think we all kind of tongue-in-cheek jokingly say that. But I don't think we realize just how much truth there is to that. And there's so much more truth to it even than people understand. So we actually have a lab set up on the farm. We've got three scientists. We're testing the nutrient, nutrient deficiencies, uh, the nitrate oxides, looking at the health of the soil, counting the biology in this, in this per square foot of the soil. Um, and based on those mineral deficiencies. It's just like as if you were to go and have blood work drawn and you find out what you're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, uh, low in calcium. Based on those deficiencies in the soil, then we're planting crop specific. Different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So whether it's clover or alfalfa or buckwheat or sedan grass, we have a 15 species planting that we're planting. 50% of the acreage in any one year is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. You know, we used to think that in between the rows of what we were growing, we had to, to cultivate and have that all nice and clean. Or in today's thought process, we're using a chemical so we don't have to cultivate to lower the expense. But now even between the rows of what we're growing, we're putting cover crops in between. And that plant then can harvest the energy from the sun, goes down through the roots, feeds the plants that we're growing to harvest to consume, and it picks that back up. We're seeing numbers as high as 150 to 300 times higher um, than the USDA average in nutrient-nutrient deficiencies. Um, 
it's really, really exciting to see us be able to move those numbers. Well, I think it's exciting to see. I, I want to see it, as a matter of fact. So sometimes send me some more information because I want to look into it. Because I think that you're giving Google more credit than it deserves. Uh, I've plunged in and do the searches. And just like so many other things, I can find anything I'm looking for. And and uh, and on the one hand, I see a study that's showing, you know, this change in nutrients and then pretty soon i see another study and it's well it looks pretty good and it's it's different so it's it's not easy for for people to to uh, just go verify that i think in general the trend that you're saying makes sense and and you know and the fact that you are backing up and analyzing what's going on with your vegetables i you know my hat's off to you i think that's i think that's great that you're doing it and and we need to talk about it some more i i think one of the broader issues for society though is that um, no matter where you get your vegetables it'd be better off if people were eating broccoli instead of doritos and and so you know keep eating those vegetables and you'll be better off but the fact that there is an effect on how they're grown on the nutrient level makes perfect sense and we'll have you come back sometime when i got a chance to look this over and we can just talk about that fact in some more depth in one of our future podcasts too right so that's that's exciting i mean it's exciting to care about it and back to your premise too that the that the system is in agriculture across all kinds of commodities is to produce as much as you can for as little as you can and get volume and yield and it's hard to get people paying attention to i say hard to get people it's hard to um have anybody promoting that story that much because you've got people that want to produce and sell fertilizers and sell pesticides and sell herbicides and 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 that brings up another thing that you you mentioned regenerative but then i assume you you're not certified organic is that right that's correct no and uh and 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 why why is that why have you not gone to the certified organic direction well, a couple of different reasons. One, we don't really want to succumb to someone else's rules that um, really, if you think about organic, it's the elimination of things from the equation. It's mm-hmm. not what's being added. Um, and there's a lot of disagreement even within the organic. Um, Elliot Coleman hardcore vegetable grower up in Maine is one of the real pioneers in organic. And uh, there's a big argument between uh, soil grown versus hydroponic. We believe we get a more nutritious vegetable and there's studies to back that up. Soil grown versus hydroponic. Uh, If we have a situation where we're going to have a total crop failure, we want to be able to have the right to be able to go in there and be able to eliminate a bug situation. Um, but it's really more about, in, in addition, we don't want to pay an additional fee to be certified organic. That makes no sense to have to pay additional money to be able to be certified organic. It's just that we chose our path and we're really not too interested in trying to succumb to somebody else's rules. We've done a lot of research on this. We've done a lot of studying on it. 
Our goal is to have the safest, healthiest, most nutritious vegetables that exist in mankind. Do we achieve it every day? No. Do we have a lot of room to improve? Every single day we do. Uh, I think there's some politics that come into play on the organic certifications, and we're just not interested in playing that game. Um, You know, I remember talking to some farmers in the Midwest before that they were pointing out that with the humidity and the heat in the summer and and so forth, it's a struggle. Sometimes you need to use some use some products, and it's not easy as easy as it is. Perhaps it is for us and and. California, where we end up having like nine months with no moisture. Um, but so there's, there are some issues. But the other thing I have discovered, and I haven't talked to any farmers that lost any business when they have a chance to explain the reasons they're doing what they're doing. Right. And so uh, it's great that people can be reassured if they're looking for organic and it can be certified organic or real organic or so forth. But know your farmers and know know what your farmer's doing. And uh, I have no doubt you have good answers for anybody that cross-examines you on why it is you're doing what you're doing. We go to the meetings. We believe in theory. We use integrated pest management. We're using the soaps. We're we're following that path, but we're not going to get ourselves pinned in to something that is sort of a, it just, it doesn't work for our business. And we build relationships with our customers. We invite them on the farms. We have, we build a facility called the Culinary Vegetable Institute, where we have about 600 visiting customers a year that come. And we get them in the field, we explain our process and our regenerative theories. And um, we have never been in a situation where anybody doubted what we were doing to be extremely safe and to be able to grow the most nutritious vegetables we could. Well, you know what? You you practice what a lot of people would like to, and that is the ability to go eyeball to eyeball with uh, with the customer customers that you feel good about what you're doing you know why you're doing it and then they can buy it trust you and and taste good you know and they they take something and they can get the they're getting to eat some of that soil from that beautiful area that you're talking about and soil and sunshine that's uh, that's unique and that's been brought to them by like you said over 180 people now you made me think of all those employees and all their families and, and to keep that kind of an, of an enterprise going. And you also alluded to the fact that for certified organic and some of the other programs, you almost would have to designate somebody doing the paperwork where you're, you're the scale. You could do that, but you know, you, you feel for some of the smaller operators that are pretty much themselves and maybe one or two others or family members, and they got to do paperwork, which uh, I'm sure you got more than enough as it as it is, but but in addition to producing this this bounty that you are, I think one of the real achievements that sounds to me that you need to be credited with is that you are creating a business that can employ people and can employ families, and um, they're all tied to the success of of vegetables and people wanting to buy those products and. You know, good for you. There's, I know there's people all over the country that wish they could be more like what you're doing. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, it's, it's never easy. 
Um, I can tell you that the paperwork that we don't do in certif certifying organic, we do in food safety. And we do have a team that's full-time on addressing our single greatest concern is providing a safe product um, because it, it, you don't know. Uh, let's say that um, your aunt has been unhealthy for six weeks and she's finally doing better and you decide to celebrate to go out to eat and that restaurant is buying from local farms to try and support the local region and there's a food safety issue. Your aunt's immune system has been compromised, something that wouldn't bother us as if we're healthy. Her immune system can't handle it. And there's some E. coli there. E. coli has been here since the beginning of time. Sure. It's just that we're more susceptible to it. And I have a whole theory on that with introducing chlorine into the water. We're the most sterile environment in the world. And we're the most vulnerable environment in the world. You never hear of an E. coli outbreak in Mexico um, because they're, they're drinking the well in the cistern water. When we were drinking well in cistern water, we didn't have the, we had enough biology of bacteria in our systems to fend off the E. coli. It's a whole nother, we could digress into that too. Um, we don't tend to like to call our, our folks employees. Uh, we like to call them team members. One of our goals is to be very transparent and uh, we have a profit sharing program. And um, once a quarter, we put the phones on record and we find a spot where we can all huddle up and we put the numbers up on the board and we share where we're at and where we're doing well and where we're getting our tails kicked or where we need to suck it up or where we need to do a better job or where there might be an opportunity. And we put it all out. And if we make money, we share it. And if we don't, we share in that too. And the goal during COVID was to survive and keep our team together. We have a thousand years of chef's garden experience here on the farm. Now, I'm not talking about experience from another farm. I'm talking about families. It's it's our extended family here. We've got folks that have been here for 26 years or 30 years or second generation now on the farm. Um, and we're very proud of that, but we're also proud of our diversity. And it really is amazing. We have folks that come from Mexico, but we also have a... Um, uh, program that we work with um, folks worldwide in agricultural program and students can come to us. We currently have Africa, Moldova, Hungary, Ukraine, Russia, uh, Brazil, Mexico, and I know I'm missing some uh, represented here on this farm and we kind of consider ourselves an international farm. Ideas come in and there's an exchange of ideas that go back to those countries and they bring ideas with them. Here's how we did it on our farm. Or they take an idea back to their farm. Some of them maybe didn't grow up on a farm, but they're interested in agriculture. So it's really it's really exciting to think um, think of the diversity because I think it's really one of our, our great assets. Our single greatest asset on this farm is not land. It's not tractors. It's not greenhouses. It's not equipment. It's not barns or buildings or packing sheds. It's people. People are what makes the place really, really special. I'm so honored to get to work with the team here at the Chef's Garden. Well, I can tell you are, and it's exciting. Now, some of those people that have been around for 25, 30 years, don't necessarily want to get on their hands and knees and pull some weeds or anything. I mean, there's, there's gotta be some backbreaking kind of uh, labor, hard work 
which I vaguely remember, but I don't really have it in me anymore that I want to I want to go do that kind of thing. And you mentioned you get some from Mexico, you get, you know, all sorts of others. Is that a challenge to deal with that end of it? Because you've got such a range of talents within your organization. But is is it a annual struggle to make sure you're getting folks that are actually still willing and able to do that physical labor? Um, well, anytime we deal with people, there are certainly opportunities. Uh, but we have uh, we try and take good care of our people and. We usually have a waiting list of folks that want to come. Um, a lot of our folks from Mexico are all coming from one one area. And um, of course, the work is difficult. We've looked for every way that we could to be able to make the work less difficult. Um, we use some plastics uh, to hold weeds or we're now converting really more onto straws and we're doing some things where we're crimping uh, cover crops over and planting into that where we reduce that high labor. But at the end of the day, everything we pick is picked by hand. But there's also situations where maybe dad's slowing down a little and he's getting closer to my age. And well, he may end up in a different position on a tractor or doing something different. And we try and, and, and a lot of times the guys will let you know, and it's not just guys, it's ladies and gentlemen. But we're sensitive to that, you know. We probably aren't as capable of working as hard as we used to either. No. So our no. goal always on the farm for all of our team is to work smarter, not harder. And we encourage that freedom to look for ways to do things that that can be more not only efficient, but make it easier on the team to do the work. So the work they're doing the vegetables you're planting or make it to consumers and uh, let's just describe these outlets where uh, how does it break down? How much is going to retail? How much might be going to internet sales or how much might be going to uh, restaurants and, and chefs? So where does your product transition into where it's going to get consumed? Well, you know, I mean, it's been a, a roller coaster. <laughs> um, what year are we talking about? I mean, in 2020, virtually none of it was going to restaurants. It, it stopped dead in its tracks. We did the, the farm to family. We did the home delivery, nationwide home delivery. We did farm market. Um, last year, the restaurants recovered some. So we saw that recover to, you know, near or above uh, COVID times. In the meantime, you know, a percentage is still going and developing a new business with home delivery and with the uh, the, the farm market on the farm. Um, an area that we're really pushing, we brought in, we hired a doctor from the Mayo Clinic. We moved her and her husband and, and children here from Minnesota, and she's employed uh, full-time. Her name is Dr. Amy Sapola. She does a podcast that folks can listen to. She's a doctor of pharmacy, but really, really focused on plant-based, plant-forward, and um, really looking at food as medicine and medicine as food, as Hippocrates said many years ago. And uh, we're excited to have her on the team and really pushing that, um, the plant-based. Look, we're not vegetarian. We like a good steak 
or a piece of fish or chicken. We think that how it's grown and where it's grown and how it's uh, how it's taken care of are, are certainly criteria that enter into our decisions on where we would buy those proteins. But we do believe that we should be eating more vegetable and less protein. A little smaller piece of steak and a little bit more vegetable on that plate. You know, if you listen to some of my podcasts, you'll see I've got others that have saying the same thing. It makes so much sense uh, what you've just described. And I've had some food as medicine podcasts and mm-hmm. and others, and people want to check out Spotify and some of the other sources uh, and go back and look through them. We've had some some good ones, and you're giving me a good one. I'm glad to add this, and it's and it's really progressive to get to this point that you were saying of getting a professional like like you have to be kind of hands-on with this now let's kind of as i start wrapping up um i want to talk about your role in this um did you always think you were going to do this i mean was there a point you wanted to leave the farm or have you been with the farm all along to this stage of your career i never left the farm i can't imagine ever doing anything different it starting from the time I was old enough to hold a trouble light for my dad in the shop while he was fixing a John Deere A. If I could be on that farm and working with my dad, that's the only thing I want to do. I had the privilege of getting to work with my father for 40 years straight, six days a week, and the seventh day at church. And I consider it the greatest privilege of my life. It was never about money. It was about getting to work together with my father and our family. Um, I, when I was 19, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mother and father, my brother and sister, and all of our neighbors and all of our competitors and watched them auction 25 years of my parents' work off at a foreclosure. Interest rates hit 22% in the late 70s, early 80s. And they auctioned everything right down to my mother's car and our house. I was enrolled down at Ohio State in agriculture and ag econ and business, and I'm the oldest in the family. My dad said, I need you to come back and help start the farm over again. We started on six acres, and um, I'm the dummy in the family. My brother has an Ohio State uh, education in agriculture. My sister has several degrees, and she's not involved in the farm, Uh, but I don't. I came back and went back to work and helped start over, and I I can't dream of doing anything else. Uh, it's it's in my DNA. And in there, a pair of overalls, as you see today, and a white shirt and a red bow tie, and that's what I'll be buried in. And I, I, I can't dream of doing anything other than attempting to grow the most nutritious, healthiest, best-flavored vegetables that exist in the world. That's our goal. Ah, what a good story. What a good story. And you're, and you're doing it. I'm proud of what you're doing what you're doing. And, and in fact, you've mentioned something that might be a short, a short, what would I say? A, a sh, uh, something I don't get done on podcasts is that I haven't taken the time and effort to get posted on a YouTube channel. I might need to, because you alluded to how you're dressed and we do these podcast interviews on zoom. So I get, we get to see each other right. and, uh, and, and chatting and you're wearing bib overalls. 
and you got a white shirt on and you got a cap that's got your logo on it and you've got a red bow tie and if somebody wants to go on uh, youtube or if they want to go look for images which i usually do i take images off of the internet and just put in you know farmer jones and and images come up and they show you always wearing uh bib overalls a white shirt and a red bow tie uh that's branding you stick to it i don't know anybody that sticks to it quite as much i lean a little bit more to the old steve job style where i'm usually wearing faded jeans and and a and a dark turtleneck you've got to look you hold it all together you not only walk the talk you look the talk that takes some dedication well it's it's who i am um I'm never going to walk in a room and say, there's the smartest guy in the room. I'll guarantee they're not going to say that. Well, they can say a lot of things about it. Oh, I'd like to think that they walk in the room and say, that man is passionate about growing vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Albert Einstein wore the same thing every day. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, that's where the similarities with him and I stopped. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I say, I mean, you tie it all together. I mean, you walk the talk, you've got the you've got a great story, you've got products, you've got people working with you, you've got you ought to feel good about what you've accomplished and and the people in your team should as well. And and I think the people listening here to Farm to Table Talk today will think, man, I'm this is a story I'm glad to know more about. And speaking of that, how do they go about knowing more about it? How can they find you? Where where should they look? They say, okay, I want this story to go on. Well, the Chef's Garden, they can go to the chefs-garden.com on a website, and it'll link back to, you can go to Farmer Jones Farm, all one word.com, and go directly to the home delivery on Instagram, Farmer Lee Jones or the Chef's Garden on Instagram, or the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Uh, we would love to have you, your listeners follow us and share with us what they're doing in their um, world, what they prepare at home, or how they're getting along. And, uh, and of course, Dr. Amy Sapola does the podcast. And uh, we're just grateful to be on here with you. You have a great reputation and a great following. And we're just excited anytime we get to talk about vegetables. I, I'm not proud. Um, of what we do. We, we live by the pride cometh before the fall. Uh, we stay hungry and humble and uh, try and continue to get better every day. And just we're so grateful uh, that God has allowed us the privilege of being healthy enough to be able to follow our dreams and visions. And I hope all the listeners are doing the same. Well, I do too. And I, I tell you, get back to me with some of the other information that we talked about. We'll talk again sometime. And, and I really appreciate that having this opportunity this evening and glad to have you as uh, a guest here on Farm to Table Talk. Oh, gosh, we're just so thankful to be on. Roger, thank you so much. Thank you. Remember, eat your veggies. I do. I do. And uh, a few other things as well. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 